Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast, where you get to hear the stories and insights from entrepreneurs, social change makers, and artists displaying how each and everyone's uniqueness makes this planet worth living on. Is Joel Solomon, author and the chair of the board of Hollyhock Retreat Center for Social Change Leaders, and also the chair of Renewal Funds, a mission venture capital firm. Welcome, Joel. Hello. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. My honor. Joel, why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners? You heard a couple of the things that uh, are my formal titles. I consider myself a gardener of relational fields that will lead to positive social change and renewed responsibility for understanding where we came from our, our, and, and appreciate our ancestors that they got us here and worked hard for us and that we wake up to the reality that we are the ancestors of the future. We have a big responsibility, whatever sector we work in, it's really about our values, our spiritual beliefs, and our need to commit to the well-being for future generations. I consider that my work. There are many, many details and practical things within that. I'm a conference organizer. I'm an investor. I'm a, I'm an advisor. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm like that. Wow. That's um, cool. Let's kick it off with this question. How, how do you start your days? It sounds like you have very busy days. How do you get into the, the zone in the morning? What's your morning routine? Well, my favorite way to start the day is to spend some time with my wife uh, while it's still quiet and while we have a chance to connect and think about our days and uh, help, help ground ourselves that way. I, I am a man of multiple practices and uh, the eclectic version of using and doing them and um, gets me prepped for what is a very diverse set of activities that i do and i think i'll just leave it at that for now that you we, we introduced you with with multiple projects um as an author and the chair of two boards so tell us a lot more what what are you working towards what what is it that a gardener of relationships does and, and gets get specific well, I, I, I'm really a relational field organizer and uh, creature. And that just, that's just a fancy word for saying uh, my connection with people and their stories and what uh, they are doing and how we can inspire each other to be planetary citizens for the long term. Uh, so the businesses and the uh, not-for-profit activities, the activism, the politics that I get involved with, all are part of what I consider a holistic picture of how one can be the best possible citizen and member of a community. So I believe in an integrated strategy. And back to the uh, gardener part, the natural world is where I derive my uh, baseline understanding of how the world should work, how things work. Um, I, I, from the time that I've spent in deep nature immersion, I know that complexity and diversity and uh, resilience and good soil and uh, mix of species, well, I guess that's diversity, <laughs> but uh, all, all of these work together in a symbiosis that creates a very uh, strong whole. 
And I believe that humans come from that and we do, we, we can do that model. We are that model. However, with the mind, the, the kind of, uh, um, extraordinary expansion of what the mind can do and how big its capacity is. And then the pursuits that follow from that, I find that we often forget our natural roots and that we're part of the cycle of life. And if we do forget that and we get cut off from it, uh, this leads to less positive outcomes in my view. We could make a lot of money. We could conquer something. We can be a, a, a powerful person. But if we lose touch with being part of the, the, the whole of ecology and of the cycle of life that uh, repeats itself over millennial, um, we can screw up and we can screw up on a larger and larger scale due to the industrial revolution, the technology revolution, communications revolution, all of this. And that is why I believe that the times require a new form of spirituality, a new form of looking at the powers that we have as a human being. And if we have the privilege that we uh, are able to, to build and uh, gain mastery in so many of the things that are now possible, then our responsibility increases accordingly. So the problem is that we're forgetting the responsibility part and we're finding shortcuts to kind of convince ourselves that we're being responsible. But uh, the greatest uh, gift that we can possibly be is that our lives are devoted to the future. Hmm. And anything other than that is, I, I find uh, questionable that, if, if, that we would live life without that sense of responsibility. And I think we're in times that have come more to, I don't even know what the past is. I don't think about the future. It's just about me right now. And uh, that's, that's dangerous for civilization and, and humanity and ecology. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, so you, you were stretching the metaphor of the, being a gardener earlier. Um, yeah. So what I hear are principles of permaculture being applied to the, the greater life of humanity. That's right. And also to my activities. So, Uh, right now, I'm, I'm part of launching something called the Integrated Capital Fellows Program that the Rudolf Steiner Foundation in San Francisco is hosting and, uh, and, and launching. And what's integrated capital? Well, well I just take that metaphor to everything, uh, back to the whole system. Without a systems approach and an understanding that we're part of larger wholes, uh, we're going we're gonna to probably make some poor choices. So the gardener uh, has to pay attention to soil conditions, to uh, water conditions, to pests, to diversity, all, all of that kind of stuff, to uh, feeding the plants when it's time to harvest. Uh, gardeners do actually a lot of editing, so to speak. We pull a lot of weeds. Uh, that, and, and the metaphor, I'm not talking about <laughs> editing people, but we do make choices about who we spend our time with, and why we do that and where we apply this incredible privilege to be alive on the planet. And especially those of us that have IQs and backgrounds that allow us to access higher education and careers and ultimately have and use money. That is, um, 
that's like that's a, that's like the gods in the past hmm. and now that's the beautiful thing is more that's available for more people well if there are gardeners of ethics and values and morals and spiritual um, spiritual attention then maybe that will help everyone lift up a bit more with the underlying principles about why we are doing things besides for our solely for our self gratification. Yes, absolutely. And um, e editing, right? Editing people is, is certainly not what we're shooting for. Um, but there's something that, that goes through my mind a lot is life is very dynamic. So no system is, is meant to stay the same forever. Um, I think that's correct. Everything's always changing, right? Everything's always changing. That's why it's important to have diverse relationships, uh, break out of the kind of easy and obvious place to be. Entrepreneurs want to hang out with entrepreneurs. Scientists probably hang out with scientists, uh, et cetera. And what's, I think, one of the great treasures in my life is, is that by being involved in diverse sectors and having curiosity about all kinds of people, that um, I get exposure. I'm also a conference curator and I spend a lot of time in networks and uh, formal and informal. And uh, that gives me access to a lot of different types. And that's really part of the richness of my life. And again, it comes from natural systems mm -hmm. principles, but uh, I, don't, I don't think that through <laughs> and, and you know, hang out somewhere or get involved in something. But I have a principle that I use, which is basically I'm going to say yes to almost everything, but exactly what part am I saying yes to is the art form. My yes might be to offer an, an introduction or a connection or an invitation or a suggestion. And in other words, everybody's valuable. There are some people that we just don't resonate with and we actually feel unsafe with. We steer away from those. Hopefully there are very few of them. And what I find is that the richness of, of human beings that uh, exist and, and how that has blossomed in such a diverse and incredible way right now means that the more we check out different circles, different settings, different ages, different sexual preferences, different <laughs> colors, all of it, um, our life becomes much richer. Mm. We are more able to understand who we want to be and be conscious about that. And we're also able to craft these days careers and lifestyles that our, our, our ancestors couldn't even dream of. The world is our oyster, so to speak. I'm sitting here on Cortez Island, uh, this big oyster beach right out in front of me. <laughs> but uh, the, the point is we, we really have a lot of choice and we have a lot of uh, creative possibility, but we do need to clear out blockages, distractions, misinformation, wounds, fears, insecurities, all of that kind of stuff. We have to work on ourselves to be able to open up more of the channels and be able to guide ourselves as we walk around this planet and uh, make determination determinations about uh what we're going to focus on mm -hmm. beautiful. don't waste beautiful. that don't waste it absolutely beautiful you're you're literally referencing the subtitle of, of this podcast displaying how each and everyone's uniqueness 
makes this planet worth living on. And I think it yeah. was Steve Jobs who, who, who said along the lines of the, the, the way we design and create is directly related to the depth of experiences and the diversity of experiences we make. Um, wow, that's, that's really powerful. And I'm really, really honored to have you on, on this podcast. Um, Joel, could you share a little more about your book that you just published? Um, the Money Revolution. Clean Money Revolution. The clean Money Revolution. But it is a money revolution. It's also a spiritual revolution, I think. Uh, so the point of the book is to, to bring more awakeness to all of us, including myself, about money. What is it doing while I'm asleep at night? What is it affecting when I buy something? What are the ramifications of making an investment and what follows from that? I am expressing myself as a spiritual being, as a moral being, as an ethical being first. That's my personal premise. After that, the pragmatic and the uh, self uh, enrichment and those kinds of things can be balanced properly. So the clean money revolution is in book is in three parts. One are personal stories of my journey and how did I find my way to an alternative approach to career. Uh, when I grew up in the 50s and 60s, things were much more mm, kind of had uh, a, a fewer options and you specialized in a certain uh, uh, special in a certain uh, uh, mm, mm, <laughs> practice, whether it was medicine or engineering or, or business or whatever it was. And you kind of did that for a career and you did it for your whole life. And you might go to work for a company. You might go to work for the government. You had a pension plan. You were there for your entire career. Things were much more limited in, in what we could do. So now things have busted open and we are walking around with much more superpowers because our ability to influence and affect things has gotten bigger and bigger due to industrial revolution and uh, technology revolution. So the, 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 how we find our pathway within all this, that's, part of the, that's the first part of the book. The second part of the book is there is a movement underway. And that movement is driven a lot by the fact that $50 trillion is going to pass hands in North America alone between people my age and younger people through death, just through inheritance. And it's probably going to grow with inflation and, and other things. Globally, I don't know. It's got to be $100 trillion. That $100 trillion, we have lived through an era where uh, we have been given a pass card on the responsibility for what our money is doing, what our shopping is causing and doing, and everything that has to do with money, where we bank, where we put mutual, where we buy our mutual funds, all, all of this. So the second part of the book describes a movement that is realigning money with our deepest values. And it's, it's sometimes it, in public equities, it's called uh, ESG, environmental, social, and governance policies. And that's a screen that you can look at uh, big corporate publicly traded companies, and you can select out of ones you think are the worst actors and for the ones you think are the best actors. Next is in private investing, private equity investing and uh, uh, seed capital and venture capital. 
in those arenas is investing directly in private companies. And that is called impact investing with the same kind of alignment of I have, I have a set of morals. I have an ethical way that I'm being in the world. I have belief systems. I care about this, this, and this. And I'm going to be sure that my investments and my purchases, but my investments align. It was as a bunch of uh, hippies doing uh, uh, clean ice cream and uh, uh, you know, other other businesses that were done out of passion and politics, like Ben and Jerry's was who I was referring to there. And so I got to see those characters early on because there weren't very many of them and there weren't very many places for them to gather. So there were a few networks where you, you could find such characters. And then to a movement that's hitting the days of millennial. Uh, but biggest majority of them want to invest aligned with what they believe in. So these trend lines are driving major financial firms, uh, banks, uh, industry to start shifting the products they're creating, whether it's renewable energy, uh, green buildings, um, organic food, uh, more, more holistic medicine, more self-care. All of all of these uh, are trend lines, which also are creating business opportunities and moving capital. So there is a movement. And then I move into the I go into the uh, moral and ethical imperative and the crisis that we face. I believe that we civilization is on the cusp of sabotaging and and causing massive damage to what we believe to be normal, natural, and just how things are. The signs are everywhere. We, we, could, we could talk soil loss of soil. We can talk ocean acidification. We can talk climate. We can talk uh, lifestyle diseases. We can go on, on, and on with the list. The information is now there. Businesses are getting created that align with what's coming tomorrow. Companies like Tesla are becoming valued higher than all the other automobile manufacturers, yet they don't make very many cars because they're a bet on the future. We know that renewables are becoming, that the price has just dropped dramatically. And to keep investing in burning fossil fuels rather than using fossil fuels for things that really matter and that they're really necessary and valuable to, maybe, uh, heart valves or I, I there's so many things we could think of where fossil fuels they're very very precious burning them is insanity now we know how to do better than that so you can go across every sector and and, and see this happening and i believe that what's required is a revisit of our spiritual understanding of why we exist and then developing our inner skills well enough and then our outer skills well enough that we can actually become peace warriors for a better world. Because this is a global challenge that all of us are in now. And it's not going to be pretty if we don't step up. Mm-hmm. So that's what the book is about. And the intention and the audience for the book is, number one, people with money. There's eight people now that own as much wealth as half the world's population. I think that's wow. sick and grossly unfair. I think we need fair taxation. I don't think we need to keep driving uh, tax burdens to those who can least afford it and away from those of us who can most afford it. That's wrong. 
there, there, there are trillions of dollars sloshing around on the planet as we speak. Most of them are doing nothing more than betting and playing uh, computer odds on a little bit of extra, you know, an angle here, an angle there, an angle over there. Okay, fair enough. That's a, that's, that's, I can't, I mean, let, let's call it neutral. I'll be kind and call that neutral. But there's still a lot of money, my money, that I think probably is enslaving people, is poisoning other people's babies, and it's starting wars that I don't want, I don't even know about, and I don't consider myself responsible for. But we are. So the book is intended to raise these questions and the conversations and I hope that it helps spark people to think about their own choices of how they make their money, how they spend their money, how they invest their money, how they share their money. And it needs, it needs politics to change around it. It needs global world religions to step up. Thank you to the Pope showing some leadership. And it needs every possible part of human existence to get smarter, better, and to think long-term and to think about hundreds and hundreds of years into the future. At least think about 50 or 100. Absolutely. Um, okay, I'm going to stop now. <laughs> well, I, I hear there's there's a lot more in there, but you're also chair um, of the board for renewal funds. And um, I guess there's a direct relation. L let me, let me um, specify the question, though, because... You were saying yeah. that our society, our civilization, as we call it, is um, there are some symptoms. Let's put it put it mildly. There are some symptoms, and we yes, can talk okay. about many, many different ones. Um, and it sounds like the fractal reserve system um, is one of them that that you've really picked out. Um, and the way that m money in our current reality simply is is based on faulty math. Um, and, and faulty right. math is, 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 is nothing that actually exists in the natural world, in the world of permaculture, in the, the perfection that is the universe where the sun rises and the moon rises every night and morning without us doing anything about it. Um, so how does renewal funds come into play there? Okay. Well, renewal funds was our way, a team of about uh, 11 people now, but with our founding partners to, and this is 10 years ago when that movement is just starting to provide these kinds of products that we would offer investors an opportunity to go into two fields that we think are important in changing, changing uh, the future. One is organics, mostly food, but sometimes skincare, the largest organ in the body. Second is environmental technologies. So we're basically venture capitalists, but with mission as our first priority. So for, we think, when we look at a company, we need to know that the product matters. It's doing something that's going to contribute to positive advances in the world and that the entrepreneurs actually care about that. Because sometimes I like to ask the entrepreneur, so if you succeed and you make $10 million or $100 million, what are you going to do with it? Why do you want to? And it's why would you be doing this? Why would you get all people's lives organized? Uh, you know, create a new product or service. So, but, but the practical part of renewal funds is we will select for you. We'll go through, we'll, we'll make investments in private companies 
and we will uh, prove that market rates and above market rates of return are available. And the point of that is so that much bigger players than us, much bigger capital than we can possibly manage, will cause others to create new products and start thinking about investing in a different way. We have 192 investors that make up our 98 million. They're half Canadian, half American, and then several from Europe and Asia. They and their families, their advisors, their friends, their their uh, colleagues will be affected by, by the degree of success that we have in some incremental way. Because for some of them, they'll brag about it. These are people who've wanted this kind of product for a long time, and they have a hard time finding it. For others, they'll, they're curious, and they came to us because legacy reasons. Uh, they actually accept the premise that organic food and environmental technologies and the greening of, of the world is the green of the industrial world is absolutely necessary, and there's money to be made there. But all of them and all of that larger extended network will be affected by our work and the fact that interviews like this and the book and others is a contribution and and, and a a contribution to attempt to multiply the kind of specific and obvious impact into something bigger. And I use that principle for all the things I'm involved in. I'd rather have a powerful story than big scale. I think the stories are what is, will help us find our way through the kind of uh, confusing chaos of current times that face the human spirit yeah absolutely i think story is very very powerful and it's through story that that we relate to and and create reality and uh, certainly relate to our own identity so um so you also use the word multiply let me ask you a different question there uh, joel um if you had 13.7 billion dollars tomorrow so there's a big, big big multiplication in there what would you do with it Yes. Okay. So you, I, I should say that my strategy as, as an operative, as a, as, a, as a gardener, is to be in diverse sectors. So one is the investment and business side. A second is the not-for-profit, the activist, social change side. A third is politics, civic engagement, stepping up to leadership of the commons. The fourth is inner skills. Emotional, spiritual, psychological, how do we be better people, which then enables us to do all that other stuff better. I often have a good time when I'm, let's say, at Hollyhock, I produce something called the Social Venture Institute. It's 100 plus entrepreneurs of cross-sector, intergenerational, and a peer learning format. We don't do very many speakers, but we spend five days immersed in helping each other and that diversity of who's there, age and uh, industry and all that makes for a very dynamic situation. We don't ask anyone to join. We don't ask anyone to uh, sign up for anything. It's go forth and prosper, help each other best you can. So we do social events because social events are golden for helping people connect deeper. Uh, uh, and in those social events, uh, you know, there may be a band or a DJ and some fires going at 
the outside at the fire pit and and uh, you know convivial activities. And when people have a good time together after they've worked together and shared who they are and what they care about, uh, this is a great model for deepening. And it creates that gossamer webbing. I mentioned, but I'm now to the to the end to the to the key line of the story. I may have someone there that I think has come. Th- from, let's say, worlds of making money and, and or trying to do social change or things like this, and they've they've worked hard at that. And there's two things I'll say to them in the room. I'll, I'll, I'll point across the room where everyone is just deeply connected and buzzing, and they're talking about meaningful things. This is not, you know, this is not just trivial. People are talking about what they most care about. And I'll say, some of the best grant making or investing that you could do. You should just float, you should just uh, sprinkle money across this room. It will work. You'll get you might get better return rates than anybody else is going to get. You'll certainly get better meaning and purpose return rates. But these are all capable, competent people. Give them fuel. Okay, so what would I do? The next thing I say is name your number and name the number of days. I can, I and others can get that out the door, no matter how big it is. Now, that's cocky. Uh, I don't know how Zuckerberg and Chan are going to deal with 90 billion or Buffett's going to deal with whatever, 80 billion. Gates is going to deal with 100. They're going to create some big foundations. If they create foundations like the institutions of, uh, of, recent past they're going to be pretty stodgy and most of the money is going to stay in their endowment and kick off earnings to give away and that endowment could very well be invested in creating the problems that they're going to solve with the earnings so what i'm saying there to tie wrap this together if you took 13.7 billion dollars and you put it out over six months or 12 months you can find people who know people you you can light you can ignite massive change that way empower you, there are ways to find who are where the networks are of of people with their values aligned with their capabilities and you can put fertilizer in there and you don't have to get too many reports you can if you want to, and that entertains you. But what is the purpose of money on this planet? Okay, have enough to have security, take care of my family, worry about my retirement, don't want to be a burden to people in my old age. Figure out how much is enough. If you get more than that, do something that matters with it. Don't just hold it and grow more and more and more money. That is such an empty thing to do with a life. Now, a lot of people will say, why do you want, I'll say, why do you want to make a lot of money? And they'll say, so I can give it away or do good things with it. Okay, tell me some of those good things you want to do. How, why are you waiting? How, can you not, why don't you take 50% of what you make? You know, once you're past your 10 million, your 50 million, your 5 million, whatever, your $50,000 that you 
think is enough for you to take care of your basic needs. Um, wh- why do you? Do, why do we have an ethic of just accumulate, accumulate, and accumulate? This is silly. It's short-sighted, and with all the brain power that's on this planet right now, that's the that's the dominant way people are using money to accumulate more money. So you're thirteen point seven billion dollars. You would you would you would give them away to people with brilliant minds who could create the values you want to be you want to see well give away and invest because there's appropriate uh, types of money for different settings and the people who are working in the not-for-profit sector can accomplish certain amounts of things uh, giving giving chunks of money to people is its own pretty awesome uh, practice like micro lending that's what things like like what like micro lending Well, there's micro lending. No, but you get that money back. I was talking about things like Ashoka Fellows and um, mm-hmm. um, uh, Echo and Green and, and all the many uh, trainings and leadership development things that are helping reach into communities that have been underserved and empower people there. So absolutely. You see somebody you think is a genius, you give them a million bucks, they're going to kick ass. Like most of them. You can make a mistake. Things can go wrong. But the odds are you can figure out if people are truly motivated and if they're on to something. What if mm-hmm. you were? So, Joel, you, you share a lot about value and mission and purpose. And I'm really curious, personally, how, how did you get to this mindset, this state of consciousness where um, you, you simply from a deep place of spiritual knowing, you know, this is why we're on this planet. Um, maybe share with us a little bit of how did you grow up or what, what happened for you to ignite this inner fire? A snapshot sequence has to do with my parents. Uh, my father's child of uh, immigrants, who, Jewish immigrants in the southern United States. Uh, for him, it was 30s, 40s and 50s. For me, it was 50s, 60s, 70s. And my mother uh, uh, was several generations past the immigrant stage. Uh, My father did the thing that many children of immigrants do, and he built a business and tried to make things better for his family and his community. And uh, I grew up first in the movie theater business that he was in, and they later sold it to some people because one of the locations wanted to be a high rise in Atlanta, Georgia. And uh, it was worth enough to to the uh, real estate developer to buy the company. Uh, And they, by the way, they tried, uh, they bought one of the first television licenses in Chattanooga, Tennessee, but they decided it wouldn't work and they let it go. So, you know, sometimes we win, sometimes we lose. Uh, But anyhow, They then got into the shopping mall business after one of their drive-in movie theaters blew down in a, in a tornado. And they had land, and they had not, uh, they had not really uh, – shopping centers were new. Uh, they didn't really exist much. I don't think they existed before the 60s. And what they represented, of course, was something about the interstate highway system and mobility and the automobile uh, era – Uh, they were often national chain stores. They were places of more opportunity for diverse people, uh, 
back to the Jews in the South. My my father was not really as able to be part of the local business community due to certain discriminations. And so working with national chain stores and national banks to finance the building of shopping centers was actually in his era. It took me a long time to realize this, but this was simply finding a way that uh, he could, he, he would, he, there was room in society for him to uh, follow his dreams and uh, take care of things. So in any case, shopping malls, shopping centers. Um, I got influenced by the 60s, Vietnam War, uh, the uh, 1968 Democratic Presidential Nomination Convention with hundreds of thousands of students out in the streets with the police riots and batons cracking heads and the whole world is watching. The whole world is watching. And I think that the combination, I forgot to mention this part, which is it was Jim Crow era, colored bathrooms, colored washing, colored water fountains, colored movie theaters. Uh, What stores could you go to? All of that kind of thing. So the combination as a kid of seeing these kind of, why were some people had to go to that line and other people got to go to the front down to the prime seats all by that and my mother always was the more uh avant-garde uh non-conformist and so now we've got 60s we've got family background uh various uh satin settings and and then um this kidney disease and so i got told i could die in two years or I could live a long time and there was nothing I could do about it. I asked about food. Didn't that matter to the kidney? And the doctors at the time had so little training, even to, they never taught, the nutrition just wasn't really part, except for the government standardized things that was heavily influenced by food produced about that, but nothing tied between food and health really. Um, And I, didn't like that. And that's what really kicked me. Like all of these things kicked me into experiences uh, from working for Jimmy Carter's presidential campaign to get myself out of the South uh, uh, to caretaking uh, an Orca research laboratory with the guy who started the campaign for Greenpeace to put the, put people in between the harpoons and the whales. And I saw people like Jimmy Carter and Greenpeace and that they had gone from nothing impossible crazy people almost to affecting the planet uh in one case the future of the largest brain mammal on the planet in another case from a one-term former peanut farmer governor of georgia to the presidency of the united states and by the way he's looking pretty darn good today just for the record (laughs) Um, that's it that's a very powerful story that's it's for a generation under under 30 years old, it's unimaginable um, to, to grow up in the, the south of the United States before 1968, I, I believe. It's it's very powerful to hear that and to share those stories with, with all of us. Um, is there something you would tell your younger self that you know now? What would you share well, with your younger self? Yeah, if I could. Well, first thing I would do is say the inner skills are what it's all about. All this specialization and figuring out how you're going to be, you know, really good at some prep, some business and stuff. Uh, if you can get your head together and your heart together, <laughs> and understand how to deal with yourself first, and with people, be it a primary relationship, a family, uh, 
or employees, uh, peers, competitors, all of that kind of stuff. Um, I think that's what equips you to have a diverse and, and wonderful life. So if you're somebody with the privilege to do that, uh, work on that stuff. You got to you got to get your MBA. They teach you nothing about how to be a decent human being. If you don't know how to be a decent human being, when you get into big business situations, you're going to default to pretty primitive behavior. And you might win that way. You might win money and power that way. But will you win happiness and satisfaction? Will you win good relationships? Will you win trust of your children? Uh, what will it be like on your deathbed when you think about uh, what you've contributed or done? So the inner skills, number one. Second, I would say life is complicated and it's tough. And some of us get lucky cards and some of us don't. And some of us who get lucky cards can squander them. And some of us who don't get lucky cards can pull ourselves out of at that and through that. And you, if you decide, if you can get clear about the meaning and purpose of your life, help your people, help your community, um, contribute something to the larger picture. If you can figure out that part, and it can be very generalized, what's the meaning and purpose? It's worth decades if it takes you decades. There's things you can do while you, you know, you're going to carry on your business and go about things. But don't give up that search because if you figure that out, there's a kind of alignment that happens. Once you have clarity of what your purpose is on this planet and you also understand from, from your inner skills that you either, you know, money doesn't solve everything. Money's a tool. Uh, happiness, joy, love, health, those are precious. How do you solve those? So my message is uh, who you are as a person. Mm -hmm. I just get chills there when you, when you said figure out what your purpose is, even if it takes you decades, because that's something you don't hear that often. And some of us and some of the people listening, um, maybe you, you, you heard that right away in life, but it's, it's a privilege where we're at in human evolution still. People, um, people are not taking decades to figure that one out. Um, what is happiness to you? So happiness follows from my ability with those inner skills to actually sense what's going on for me. And happiness is when there's joy, there's love, there's a sense of possibility. I feel good about myself. I feel good about my interactions. I feel good about my direction. And I believe now that having opened up to this kind of thinking and and done some uh, learning and training and gone through things with teachers and therapy and, you know, the tools that are out there for us today, practices, meditation, yoga, all, all of it can help. We each find our own pathway. But I can tell whether I'm happy or not happy. And if I'm not happy, that's when practices kick in. The first is be vulnerable with someone that I trust. Or even be vulnerable with people I don't know. Take care of yourself. But when I say be vulnerable, I, if I'm not, if I'm out of sorts and not happy, I don't care what setting I'm in, I'm going to say to somebody, yeah, I'm not feeling that good right now. I, I, I'm not sure what's bothering me. But I, And if I just simply lead with that vulnerability and talk about it, that usually cures it. But there's other levels. Uh, 
uh, if you're if you're lucky enough to be able to jump in some natural water, if you're able to lay down and go to sleep, like I, I can change so much by just resting sometimes, and it's basically like changing the channel. So happiness for me is when uh, there's 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 love around, there's caring. There's long-term relationships uh, often create happiness. There's that feeling of ecstatic joy when I feel aligned with purpose and, and I'm working, I've got people to, to uh, connect with and, and do work with who I'm inspired by. And uh, I think it is, I think it's a gift of being born as a human that we can have happiness. And another thing just, and I'll stop on this one is we know that's that. Okay. So 3 billion people live on the planet on very, very little money. And their main activity is to figure out food and water for the day to feed their family and themselves and, and, and then shelter over their heads. Those among that 3 billion are some very happy and satisfied people. They have culture, they have community, they have traditions, they have ways of being that put them in touch with higher purpose and with multi-generational thinking. Some of the wealthiest people in the world are the least happy. It's not about money. Money helps. It's a tool. But money can be very toxic and really damage people. I'm stopping now. There's there's so much that that comes through you. I, I I wish we had had more than an hour to to sit and talk and share and record for all of us to hear. Um, community is certainly a huge aspect for happiness for myself as well. Um, Joel, this is this is a question. Big time. I um, I I plan to ask as many people on the planet as possible because it's dear to my own heart, to my own soul that we together reach this place of thinking about longer visions. And you mentioned it earlier already that at, at the minimum have a 50-year vision. Um, so my question is, if you had a 200-year vision for planet Earth, or if we as a shared humanity had a 200-year vision for planet Earth, how would that look like? Well, I'm going to start and tell you a little story because I am involved in politics and activism as well. And so I once had one of the national newspapers in Canada finish an article about me that was meant to be negative. And it said, he still has 480 years to go in his 500-year plan for, for social change. That was one of my proudest uh, media moments because I use 200 years, 500 years, 50 and 100 as a metaphor. It's a metaphor for long-term thinking. Uh, I devote my life to people that I will never know. That doesn't stop me from having a great time, being happy, getting engaged in all kinds of rewarding things. But the world that I see in a couple of hundred years, the best I can do with that question is that we have figured out how to protect the commons, how to effectively, we might as well worship it, Worship the, the, the biosphere, this, this place that's the Garden of Eden that, that nourishes us, that keeps us alive, that gives us water, that gives us air, gives us sunshine. So I don't know how humans got lost from that. I think early humans all knew that. 
but we have got to figure out how to be techno industrialist beings and have the number one priority be this precious planet. I'm not, some people are going to go to Mars and they're going to go to other planets and they're going to, or they're going to embed themselves into robotics or artificial intelligence or something. And I don't understand all of that to, to really comment on it. Power to them. I hope it's got a good outcome, but for most of us, uh, the best that we can hope for 200 years from now is that people have even as much as we do as much, uh, spectacular divine wonder as to be alive and to live on this planet. And I, I just, I, I think 200 years from now we'll be, we will have had the opportunity to be smart enough to figure out how to design governance and major systems such that we, we, we moderate our population growth. We even decelerate it. We decentralize the things that are good to decentralize. We're very careful with the things that get centralized. We figure out guaranteed minimum income, health, education, welfare. We take care of people. There's plenty of wealth to do that. There's just disparity and unfairness around wealth holding. We tax properly and we are able to focus on the more enlightened endeavors of creativity, creation, love, spirituality. Uh, that's the best I can do with 200 years from now because man, trying to predict where things are going to go right now. You just got to hope for the values that will be there. It's the values that I can, I can, uh, map out better than the specifics. Beautiful. Yeah. When, when I, um, ask myself that question, it, it has very little to do with specifics. It's, it's all about values and I'm, I'm very, um, I'm very touched and inspired that this is what I get um, echoed from from someone like you who is walking this path since decades and um, and proudly so. I have two more questions for you, Joel. Um, Bring it. One, one brings us back to practice, and so you've been involved with Hollyhock from the early days, and Hollyhock is a retreat for social change makers. So right. share with us, is there one practice, and if yes, which one is it? What 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 do people do? Is there a practice that kind of that brings people together in circle, that lets people really arrive in the moment and open up into this space of vulnerability in which magic flows? Oh, it's, there's no one practice, but there's some really great ones. Singing together is an excellent one. Uh, uh, swimming in the ocean is an excellent one. Dancing together. Singing, dancing. Actually learning something about it where its roots are what its origins songs are powerful incantations they're 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 actually magic we are using our vibrational field to create tones and those tones actually affect things around us dancing is the expression of exuberance so those are the those are there for everybody mm. we are very complicated beings and the world is making us more complicated so there's a lot to unravel so anything that is about self-reflection, self-exploration, vulnerability, at least in the face of ourselves, and being real about who we are and what we are inside, and that we're on a path of practice. I, I think the practice is the path of practice. Got There's it. so many wow. things that can help us, so many pathways to the I, I love that you, that you mentioned singing. Um, the first episode I recorded for a Green Planet, Blue Planet podcast was with a professional opera singer. And he said, 
when more people are singing, more people are harmonizing. And since Absolutely. since he shared that, my mind was just blown. It's 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 very true. Um, let me ask you one more question, and that comes back to your personal practice. Um, what are the last two books you you read, Joel? The last two. Uh, let's see. So there's Journey to the Future. Another, a better world is possible. This is by one of your Victoria uh, colleagues, uh, Guy Donsey. And uh, Guy wrote a, read my book and did a great review and sent me his book. And so I've been uh, reading through that, and it's, it's really well done. Mycelium Running, How Mushrooms Can Help Save the World, Paul Stamets. Paul uh-huh. Stamets is uh, also a Cortez Island part-time resident and teaches at Hollyhock. And he is mind-blowing. Yes, absolutely. He is proposing that uh, that that the that the that the uh, my, mycological kingdom has the ability to clean up oil spills and toxic waste, to cure cancer, to save the bee population, and many other things. And so, it's really fascinating to see a deep natural world thing that's been around us all the time. It's under our feet. It's in the trees. It's almost everywhere we go. It's probably growing on our sink right now. <laughs> yeah. uh, that that the the micro that that the that the that the world of, that comes from mycelium uh, is is has a has a lot of potential now for uh, to make things better for humans. Interesting. It sounds so like just, sounds like Paul up. Stamets um, maybe has a thing or two to share about how the biosphere actually is is in unison already. Um, that's right he would be a, a, a great next person to interview as well uh, I didn't know he lives on Cortez yeah, yeah. we're lucky we're, yeah lots of people are, are uh, pulled into the Pacific Northwest well Joel thank you so much for spending an hour with me and um, sharing parts of your life's journey and sharing with us um, what inspires you and what makes you move and what makes you share your purpose is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners My close is this. The people in the future are going to be studying this time. This is the era. The, the people alive today have the power to destroy or, or uplift more than has ever existed before on the planet. If we squander that, we are dooming a lot of the future to a bad outcome. So we will be studied. This period will be studied. And and there's going to be some heads shaking. They're going to go like, what the heck were you people up to? But thank you to those of you that woke up and devoted yourself to the long term, the bigger picture, and to the commons. And you, you, you did things to help shift direction, spread a way of thinking and a spiritual awakening. We shine a a beacon of light. Yeah, that's right. For us future generations to be here and enjoy some of what you had. Thank you so much. So remember that. Mm. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you for being on the show. A pleasure. For more, check out greenplanet-blueplanet.com. 